This morning, uh, it is my great delight (laughs) uh, to share with you something that the Lord helped me begin to see when I read A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy uh, when I was 18 years old at the end of my freshman year of college, and I have never been the same since. Uh, He acquainted me with a view of God that was stunning, awesome, glorious, compelling, that I have sought to pursue and know better and, and honor as I've had opportunity to, to teach about God over all these years. What a privilege to teach at wonderful schools, uh, Southern being the one I've been at the longest. So this morning, I, I want to just paint a portrait, as it were, of one aspect of God through one attribute of God that we're going to look at. It's an attribute that, honestly, we don't talk about a lot in our churches. And it is one that I have come to see is not only absolutely critical for understanding God correctly, it's also critical for understanding who we are before Him. So, indeed, it's just such such a, a joy to be able to think about these things with you together. You will find, as we go through this, at many points, that this will be very humbling to us. But none of it is humiliating, right? It, it doesn't bring shame upon us or in, in any way belittle us. But what it does show is how little, not belittled, but how little we are in comparison to the greatness, awesome fullness, infinite perfection of God. And a privilege, what, what, what a privilege it is then for us who have nothing in ourselves, to be attached through Christ to the one who has everything. All right. What what attribute is this? It's the self-sufficiency of God. The self-sufficiency of God is uh, is an attribute that uh, uh, just helps us grasp who God is and who we are before Him. The sermon outline this morning, I don't know if you have a copy of it, but it's very simple. They do. All right. Thank you. It's in, it's in your worship folder, so you might want to get that out. The outline is very simple. I'm going to start with a definition of uh, the self-sufficiency of God and then move on to two passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, that tells us who God is as a self-sufficient God. And then third, move on to implications and applications. So pretty simple. Definition, passages how this applies to our lives. So let's begin with the definition of God's self-sufficiency. To say that God is self-sufficient is to say that God possesses within Himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within Himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. So what I mean by quality is everything that is qualitatively good. His his holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His knowledge, His wisdom, His goodness, His love, His power, all of these qualities, sometimes called the attributes of God, sometimes referred to as God's perfections, all of these qualities are possessed by God within Himself intrinsically. 
Now, some people have wondered, do you have to say intrinsic after you've just said he possesses them within himself? And the answer is, yes, you do. For this very reason that it's possible to possess things within yourself that are not intrinsic to you. You take them in from outside. They're not your own by nature. So, for example, if all of us would, when I indicate, take a deep breath. Are you ready? Breathe in. Ah, that feels good. Well, that breath that is within you is not intrinsic to you, right? You have to be in an environment where there is air to breathe or you will not live. Did any, any of you check before you came here this morning to make sure there would be air in the room? You didn't because you just assume it's going to be here, but the fact is you need it. We wouldn't survive if there wasn't air in this room, right? We have to take it in from outside. It's extrinsic to us. It's not intrinsic to us. Here's the thing about the attributes of God, these qualities, these perfections of God, every one of them and all of them together are within God intrinsically. That is, they're His by nature. Nobody gives Him any of these, right? He's not beholden to anyone outside of Himself for the fullness of who He is as God. So He possesses these qualities within Himself intrinsically and eternally. So there never was a time in eternity past, never will be a time in eternity future, certainly is not the case now, that he lacks any of these. He has them in fullness. Now, how full is the fullness of God's possession of these? Well, that's the end of the definition, right? He possesses all of these qualities within himself intrinsically, eternally, and in infinite measure. Now, the term infinite is a negative term, not finite which only begs the question, what does it mean to be finite? Well, to be finite is to be limited, restricted, bounded, right? So think of it, my friends. Everything that is qualitatively good, beauty, wisdom, the greatness of His power and His might, His knowledge and His wisdom, everything that is qualitatively good is possessed by God within himself intrinsically by his very nature as God. He possesses these qualities eternally, and he possesses every one of them without boundary, without measure, without restriction. What an amazing God God is. Now, is this taught in the Bible, the self-sufficiency of God? Well, it is. And let me take you to just two sample passages that will help us see this. The first is Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 17. Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 17. Let me read uh, just verse 12 for us to think about for a moment. I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. Uh, you'll notice that as I read this, it, it is a, uh, some rhetorical questions are asked by God through the prophet Isaiah that help us get, get pictures of the great immensity and vastness and measurelessness of God. So verse 12, who do you know who has measured the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Aren't those questions just so riveting. So think of that first one with me for a while. Who, who do you know who can measure the waters of the world? Think of it, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, 
The Mediterranean Sea that would have been familiar in Isaiah's day, who do you know who can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? What an image. Now, I have a wonderful memory of a time with our two girls, uh, Bethany and Rachel. You may know both of them for all I know because Bethany used to be in, in Louisville and Rachel is now. Uh, They were little, and we were on vacation along the Oregon coast near Cannon Beach. Put it on your bucket list. It is a definite uh, destination point. Uh, We were on on vacation near Cannon Beach, Oregon, and uh, when we got up on our first morning there uh, in, in our little cottage that we were in, I had this idea. So I read Isaiah 40 to the family at at, uh, breakfast, and then I said to the girls, "Uh, hey, girls, do you want to do an experiment with Daddy down at the beach? And they said, oh, sure. They're excited to get out and get down there. So they grabbed their towels, and we head down to the beach. And when we got down there, I said, now, girls, you remember what we read this morning about God, how He can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of His hand? And he said, yeah, yeah, we remember that. So I said, here's what we're going to do. I want you to stay right along the shoreline here where the waves are coming in, and I'm going to go out into that vast Pacific Ocean. And I'm going to lean down and scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands, and I want you to watch really carefully to see how far the level of the ocean dips when I do that. Okay, Daddy, they're excited. So I went out in the ocean, scooped up water, Did it change? No, Daddy. I said, come on, girls, look again. Look carefully. So I leaned down and scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got down on my knees, eye level with my girls, and I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are and how big God is. I'm I'm your dad, and I, I went out into this Pacific Ocean and scooped up all the water I could in the hollow of my two hands, and absolutely nothing changed. But I said, look at that ocean. Imagine a hand so big that if it came down and scooped up water, that ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. Wow, what an image. Here's another As we move on in verse 12, who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? The span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and your little finger. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? And calculate the dust of the earth by the measure and weigh the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who do you know who can hold the scales upon which you weigh the mountains? Put the Rockies over here. Put the Himalayas over here. Who do you know who can hold the scales that weighs the mountains? Wow. So God is immense and powerful and vast and mighty, this God is. Now, Verses 13 and 14, the rhetorical questions continue, but the subject matter changes now to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Pick up with me, verse 13. Who do you know who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, who gave him understanding, and who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? What's the answer to those questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? Answer? No one. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. Now get this one, my friends. God wants no advisors. Why? 
Well, the answer to that question can be answered in two words. God knows everything perfectly. That's why. He knows everything perfectly. Now, think how that contrasts with us. I told you this would be humbling. Here's, here's one place you see it right away. If God were to be so kind to come among us right now and help us understand of all the knowledge that we possess as a human race, uh, all, all of its features and, and its details, how much of the knowledge we possess would be in comparison to what God possesses? I think the answer might be something like, we possess the equivalent of a grain of sand on the seashore. Because God's knowledge is infinitely full. All knowledge is His. We have such a tiny little bit of it. Now, here it gets worse. I mean, that's humbling, but it gets worse. He knows everything perfectly. You know where this is going, don't you? So now the question is, of all that we claim to know, all of our knowledge that we claim to have as human beings, of how much of it are we correct and where are we wrong? Oh, that one hurts, doesn't it? We don't like to be wrong. I know we don't, yeah? but here it is. We're, we're wrong about so many things. So here's the thing with God. He has infinite knowledge. He knows absolutely everything, and He knows all of it perfectly. He's never wrong about every, anything. He never has a misperception, a misunderstanding on anything that there is. And hence, He doesn't need any advisors, doesn't want any advisors. What could we possibly say to God that He doesn't already know, right? So indeed, the knowledge, the wisdom of God is beyond our comprehension. God cannot be advised by us. And we should remember this, by the way, when we pray. We're never in a position to advise the Almighty, to tell Him what He needs to know so He will do what we know He should do. We come with boldness in Christ, yes, but we also come with humility. Goodness, Jesus prayed, not my will but yours be done. Don't you think we should do the same thing? Recognizing God is the only one who has all wisdom, all knowledge, and can plan exactly what is best. We're not in that position, so we humble ourselves before Him. Okay, now we've seen the immensity, the power, the knowledge, the wisdom of God. Now, in verse 15, we begin to see implications for us. Verse 15, behold, the nations. Now, get the significance of that term. That is the collective totality of humanity taken together. All of who we are, all of our knowledge, all of our power taken together. What are we like before God? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as, as a speck of dust on the scales. I mean, those are not very complimentary images, are they? Drop from a bucket, speck of dust on the scales. I mean, they both communicate what? Something that is tiny, little, insignificant, inconsequential, right? So that's, some of you might be thinking, well, at least we're a drop, at least we're a speck, right? Well, keep reading, it gets worse. Behold, the nations are like, are, are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. The idea there at the end of verse 15 is God plays with the islands of the world like a little kid runs sand through his fingers. 
Even Lebanon, that area north of Israel with all of its forests and all of its animals, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all the nations, here we are back again, the collective totality of humanity, what are we before God? All the nations are as nothing before him. Well, my friends, we've been demoted, right? We've gone from drop and speck to nothing. You can't get lower than that, can you? Yes, you can. Keep reading. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. I think we've hit rock bottom. Less than nothing and meaningless. Now, it is really important to understand what this means and what it does not mean. Let's start with what it does not mean. When God says, when I look at the nations of the world, they are before me as less than nothing and meaningless, he does not mean I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. How do we know that cannot be what God means by this? Well, how about John 3.16? God so loved what? The nations, the world, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Goodness, it is not the case that God doesn't care about the nations. He does. He sent his son. Even in Isaiah 40, we won't read it here, but if you remember the end of this chapter, you know, mounting up with wings like eagles and so on, all of that has to do with God caring about his people, that they would look to him for his strength, for his wisdom and their weakness. Well, that's caring for people, isn't it? So it cannot be the case. That in verse 17, God says, I don't care about the nations. So what does it mean? What he says, when I look at the nations of the world, they are before me as less than nothing and meaningless. Here it is. Hear it well. If you ask the question, what can the nations of the world with all of their might and power and prowess and knowledge and wisdom, what can they add to the infinite fullness that is God's. The answer is, they can add nothing, absolutely nothing. For God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. He is self-sufficient. All right, let's look at one other passage, Acts 17. Verses 24 and 25, this is really the classic text in all of the Bible on the self-sufficiency of God. Paul is in Athens at this point, waiting for others to join him, and he has observed that Athens is a very religious place. There are altars and shrines and inscriptions to every known deity in Athens. Archaeology has confirmed this. They prided themselves in knowing about every god. The irony is the one god they didn't know about was the one and only true and living god. So Paul begins to talk about him. They invite him to the Areopagus to declare who this god is. So we pick up at verse 24. This is Theology 101 from the Apostle Paul. It doesn't get more basic or more important. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. There it is. Now, do you see self-sufficiency in there? It's there, right in the middle, right? He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Well, I submit to you, the only reason he doesn't need anything is because he possesses everything, right? He has it all, so he can't be added to. There's nothing that can be contributed to him. So indeed, Paul gives actually three reasons here for the self-sufficiency of God. The first is in the beginning of verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. That is, He is creator of all that is. Now think with me. You've got to think, but it's worth it. Here it is. What is the logical connection between God as creator and God as self-sufficient? What's the connection? Or to put it differently, what is it about God as creator that shows He must also be self-sufficient? You see it? Is it coming to mind? Well, how did God create? He created by speaking into existence a universe that did not exist before, right? But who existed before? God. As the same God He was before He created as He is after He created. So hence, creation doesn't contribute anything to God. Creation, rather, is a reflection of God, right? His beauty put on physical, visible display. His power put on physical, visible display. His wisdom put on physical, visible display. This is why Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory not of the heavens. What do the heavens have to do with being the heavens for heaven's sake, right? Nothing. The heavens declare the glory of God because it's His character manifest through what has been made. So we realize then the dependency relationship between God and the world runs one way. How much does the world depend upon God? For absolutely everything. We'll see that explicitly stated at the end of verse 25. How much does God depend upon the world? Not at all is the answer. Because everything that is in the world comes from God, therefore, from Him, through Him, to Him. Anything we give back to Him is already His. There's nothing that can be added from us to make God better. Nothing that can be contributed to Him to increase His magnificence, His glory, His grandeur, His infinite fullness. So, Creator, but then secondly, not only is, crea is He Creator, but He's Lord and Ruler. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth. So, so this is just good biblical theology, right? To create is to own. To own is to have rightful rulership over. So how much did God create? Everything. How much does He own? Everything. How much does He have rightful rulership over? Everything. Boy, we need to remember that. We, we own things in relation to one another, but how, what, what do we own in relation to God? Answer, nothing, nothing. We are stewards, not owners. Stewards are people who have what is given to them by the owner and are to use those things given to them in a way that the owner approves. That's a steward, right? Given something from the owner, in order to use that in a way that the owner approves. So indeed, it is so humbling to realize before God, we own zero, not one penny, not one 
item of, of possessions. N- nothing at all is owned by us in relation to God. Not our children, not our spouses, right? They're God's, not ours. Okay, so that's the second thing. Then the third one comes at the end of verse 25. That is support for his self-sufficiency. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Well, so he's the giver of all things to all people. Well, again, I submit to you, if, the, if God gives all things to all people that he must possess antecedently, what? All things. He possesses all things. So indeed, God is self-sufficient. He possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. All right, let's move on now to implications and applications of this doctrine of the self-sufficiency of God. The first one, you might have anticipated it, is really humbling. And it's really the basis for the other ones that will come. It is this. Because God is fully self-sufficient, God does not need the glorious creation that he has made, either in whole or in any part, including, take a deep breath here, folks, including his creation of human beings. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us or anything that we have to offer. Now, I just got to tell you, when I first learned this, it was an absolute shock to me because I grew up in a Baptist church in Spokane, Washington, where I learned the gospel. I was saved there. There were many good things that happened there, but this story I'm about to tell you is not one of those. I remember a fifth grade boy's Sunday school class where a friend of mine asked the teacher the question, and I was so interested in this, I, I, you know, perked up and listened Why are we here? Why did God make us? And the teacher, without any hesitation, said, you know, before God had created us, he was all by himself. He was all alone. He had no one to talk to, no one to have fellowship with. And that's why he created us to fill this void in his own life. This emptiness that he had would be filled by us as we we became friends with God and and fellowshiped with him. And I remember thinking there, there, this, this, me as a fifth grade boy in this boy's Sunday school class, I remember thinking, you know what? That is an absolutely wonderful reason for living, to help out poor God. Poor God needs a friend. I can be his friend. I can do that. And really this, this notion, this, these were my words, not theirs, but poor God, kind of was written large over much that took place in this church. Building programs, you know, but especially, oh my, especially missionary calls. Can you hear this with me? If you don't go. Yeah, it's pretty clear. Poor God. He's stuck. He needs your help. Come on, will you help him? Well, will you go, please? Because he wants to reach those people. He can't do it without you. Oh my, aren't we important? Aren't we significant? And, and this, this is the problem with this theology. It is so demeaning to God and so falsely inflating of us, is it not? So I learned, oh my goodness, it's not true. 
that God needs us, that He created us because He was lonely. By the way, what's the theological answer to the notion that before God created us, He was all by Himself and alone? The doctrine of the Trinity, where you have within the very being of God the persons of the Father and Son and Spirit in intimate and everlasting communion and fellowship and love relationship far surpassing anything that God could have with mere created beings. So indeed, no, he wasn't lonely. So, capital letter B, so why are we here? What is our purpose? If the answer is not, he was lonely and that's why he created us to fill this emptiness in him, what is the answer? Here it is, my friends, and it is stunning. Are you ready to be stunned? Are you ready to fall on your face in worship? Here it is. Though God doesn't need us, amazingly, He loves us. Now, just think about that for a moment. That is just an astonishing statement because we know no other love relationship that is like this, where one party stands in absolute uh, fullness, no need whatsoever, loves the other one who is needy. Is that marriage? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I mean, if you think you're in that position of, I don't need anything, oh my goodness, you need marriage counseling quickly, very quickly. as, As married couples, in any human relationship, we come into that relationship with needs. The other one comes into this relationship with needs, and we help each other in this. But this relationship with God is unique. The lover does not need the beloved. And yet he loves the beloved. How much does he love the beloved? In this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh my goodness. So let me keep reading now. You can follow along if you're looking there. So though God doesn't need us, amazingly, He loves us, and hence His purpose in creating and redeeming us is not that we might fill up some lack in Him, but that He might fill us up with Himself. He made us empty to be filled with His fullness, thirsty to drink of the water of life, weak to receive His strength, foolish to be instructed and corrected by His wisdom. In His love, He longs to give, to share the bounty He wants us to experience in finite measure the fullness of joy and blessing that He knows infinitely, all to redound to the praise and the glory of His name, the giver and the provider of all the good that we enjoy. Take this home, read it again, soak it in. I mean, this is just just phenomenal. The way God makes us, empty vessels to be filled by Him. Here's a short answer to why are we here. To be loved by God. To be loved by Him. To experience His knowledge and wisdom. His compassion and strength. His character. His holiness. His love reproduced in us in finite measure. We're the needy ones, not God. And he knows it. He created us to fill us with himself. Number three, why does God enlist our service? Consider Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. It's an imperative. And Acts 17, 25, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. 
How do these two go together? Well, here's the answer. God doesn't need our service, Acts 17, 25. So his call for us to serve, Psalm 100, verse 2, is his gracious call for us to participate in the privilege and the joy of the ministry of grace that flows from him to us and through us into the lives of of others. We can take no credit. All that we have is a gift from Him, and He gives us what we have to be used in service to others. So let's go back to those missionaries for a moment again, right? If you don't go, does God need missionaries? Absolutely not. You know what? God could at any time, any time that He wanted to. He's omnipotent, He's omniscient, He's omnipresent, okay? He could speak the gospel in perfect dialect to every single person on the planet. And in the next 20 minutes, the entire world would be evangelized. He can raise up from these stones, sons of Abraham. He doesn't doesn't need me right here, right now. And I know it. And it's so good that I know that. It's not about God needing us. But here it is. He wants us. He wants missionaries. JP, he wants you. He doesn't need you. He wants you. Why? Because he wants us to share in the greatest work there is to do. To be participant, not not just, you know, you know what it's like if you like to play a sport, you're on the team and you're on the bench the whole time. You know what that's like, don't you? It's terrible. I know what that's like. I I remember those days because, you know, my size and not my skill, though, no, but my size uh, on the bench a lot. And whenever I heard the coach say, where? Oh, my goodness. So here is God saying, we're in the game. We get to play the most important work there is to do, period. And he says, I love you so much. Yeah, I could do it all myself. Don't need you for any of it. But I want you, out of my love for you, to grant you the privilege of participating in this greatest of all works. Isn't it incredible? So when you think ministry, if the first idea that comes to your mind when you think ministry is hardship, difficulty, uh, struggle, strain, you know, all those things may be true. But here's the first Thing, the first word that ought to come to your mind when you think ministry, privilege. The God who doesn't need us calls us into His service. Isn't that incredible? Out of His great love for us. Finally, how can we know and be rightly related to this glorious, rich, full God? Answer, in our sin, this is impossible. And apart from God's grace, we're eternally separated from this one who alone is good and true and wise and holy and beautiful and joy-filled. I mean, think of the horror of hell, separation from God and all that he is. Everything that is good is only in him. So indeed, Apart from God's grace, we are separated from Him, but through faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God, enabled to know God. What love, what grace, what mercy, what joy is ours in God, but only through Christ. So have you trusted Him? 
Do you realize he's the only Savior? But he is the Savior. Come to him. Confess your sin. Accept his forgiveness from his work on the cross and enter into the relationship with your creator God that he designed you for. May God help us all to seek our good in God because that's where good is found. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning to look at glory in you. Help us, Lord, to contemplate your greatness, our littleness, and find joy in that as we seek what we need in you and not in ourselves. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.